0: transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, hit. Decree
1: absolute. Operation.
0: I will not be pushed, filed,
2: stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed or numbered. My life is my own.
1: They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. that whole TV show on a degree absolute.
0: If you like lava lamps and weather
1: balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick Magoon, Chris and Glenn made a
2: Absolute. absolute. Glenn, Chris, how are your mentions doing this week, buddy? Uh,
0: I haven't checked. I I, I mean that sincerely. Why?
2: We did just release our episode dissecting Fallout, the confounding, divisive finale of The Prisoner. Our own episode was appropriately confounding and divisive. At least we did finally find out who number one is and fall out. Did we Jonathan know? majors did well. not foresee that Jonathan majors would be revealed <laughs> oh, as number see. one. That was a big surprise. Nice crossing the streams. I like it <laughs> <laughs> just to get us going here. I, I want to read an excerpt from a guest column that Patrick McGowan, Patty McGee improbably contributed to the Hollywood reporter in 1971 Three years after the finale of The Prisoner, he was asked to give an instant reaction to the final episode of Green
0: Acres.
2: (laughs) Yes. As he wrote, uh, I'm sick of myself for continuing to beat this particular drum. I cannot imagine how sick of it you are if it's unpleasant and exhausting for me to keep defending the Prisoner finale. Aren't you getting tired of hating it? And so I, like number six, want out to be free and to grant you the same. I'd like to make a pact, you and me. And here's your part. You acknowledge that I know how you feel about the ending. Boy, the accent is really, uh, yes, really
0: eroding here. We went through the Netherlands and now we're in Australia, but that's. All. <laughs> I got it. I heard you. I will think about your dissatisfaction always
2: and forever. It will stay with me until I lie on my back dying, camera pulling back slowly upward, whether it be a solitary dog or an entire SWAT team that comes okay. to my side right. as I breathe my last breath. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. This is Damon Lindelof who wrote this. Yes. <laughs> I, I got my notes all confused. In regards to the Breaking Bad finale uh-huh. in, in 2013, which, which followed the resolution of his series Lost by a little more than three years. hmm uh-huh. But Lost, Glenn, is a show that you and I have frequently discussed off-air as, as
0: uh, one of the descendants of the prisoner that we thought we should get around to. And yes. we are about to do that with somebody who knows a hell of a lot more about it than either of us.
2: Well, yes, and knowing a hell of a lot more than we do, that's, that's no great shakes. But our guests' credentials are truly world-class when it comes to Lost and its showrunner Damon Lindelof. She chronicled Lost as it was airing originally for the Washington Post's Lost blog. In the years since, she has moved on to Vulture, where she is a TV critic, and it is there that she published last February the definitive oral history of The End. That is the title of Lost's climactic episode from May of 2010. She has also written in great depth about Damon Lindelof's other series, The Leftovers, and Watchmen. We are delighted to have with us Jen Cheney, Vulture's own Jen Cheney. Welcome, welcome, welcome. To a degree, absolute.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
2: I'm, I'm glad because we we need you here. We need you to to endure this because uh, when it's just me and Glenn, it gets really uh, it gets really depressing, Jen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so glad you're here. That's uh, not true.
1: I'm sure that's not true. It's, eh, it's
2: somewhat true. Yeah, that's um, somewhat true. Oh, sorry. I didn't. I just I meant to read Patty McGee's uh, kicker to his his essay about Green Acres. Oh. I did it for me. I liked it.
0: I was good at it. I was really, I was alive. <laughs> okay. All right. So we are just throwing this is mad men quotes in here, all kinds of stuff. So let's Let th- That was still ourselves. Lindelof. That was still Lindelof. <laughs> that was the same piece, Glenn. This is this is clearly, uh, un- unlike Blank Check, this is no longer a no bit zone. Um, Jen, it strikes me that when we're talking about endings and the kind of universal reaction they get, the Lost Finale happened before the internet was a uh, the cesspool that it is today. How do you think it would have changed <laughs> if the Lost finale happened now?
1: Well, I mean, it was it was getting towards cesspool uh, mm-hmm. territory at that time, but you're, you're right that it wasn't quite as bad as it is now. And I think the response to it would have been even more divisive and ugly if it had come out now versus then. But I, But I think it's really hard to kind of untangle Lost and what it meant and how it was responded to from the time in which it uh, was airing because it was at that moment when people were getting on Twitter and just to me, it was really the first puzzle box show that everybody was trying to dissect to such a degree online. Um, Something we now take for granted because we do that with so many shows. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say having watched this prisoner finale for the first time compared to lost, like lost gave you far more answers than the prisoner did. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's much more explicit. Um, and I would even say it's much more explicit than some of um, Lindelof's later shows. Both um, The Leftovers and Watchmen have an, an ambiguity to their endings as well. Um, right. So yeah. uh, if, if The Prisoner came out now, I think people would absolutely lose their minds.
2: Yeah. Another thing you've written about is that Lost may have been the, the last TV show with a massive audience that everyone would be watching all at the same time and trying to sort out their feelings about simultaneously. That's not something that happened necessarily with the prisoner. I mean, it didn't. It aired at different times in different places in England, and then it was shown in the U.S. almost a year later. You know, so there wasn't even if Twitter had existed in 1968, there would not have been an instant global conversation around it.
1: Right. That's true. So,
0: with a, with a show like Lost, it's I, I think the strength of the reaction can be traced uh, to a couple places. One, it's a question of investment, right? Because you've got multiple seasons, meaning multiple hours of watching. But for a show like Lost, a puzzle box show, like you mentioned, it's not just the hours you spend watching, it's the hours you spend thinking about it, chasing down clues, you know, online, talking about Easter eggs, posting about it. It's also something about the question of ownership, which is, I think, something that's increased since the end of Lost. This feeling that what we watch belongs to us, uh, therefore we are owed something. But isn't it also a question about, you introduce an essential mystery, What's what the hell's going on on this island, and as the show goes along, inessential mysteries start to creep in, because as you made very clear in the, in the oral history, they wanted the show to end sooner, the network wanted the, them to keep going, so they're having to keep fueling this engine by throwing in questions about, you know, why Kate carries around a toy airplane. Or something I don't care about that uh, I don't I think meaningful not a lot of people care about that but this is something that lost did which for all its faults the prisoner never did there was no inessential mystery introduced later on it it's just that we what when we got to that ending it, as you say in your in your old history Lindelof said you know people think they want answers but what they love is the mystery the feeling of chasing that mystery and inevitably answers are disappointing and I think what McGowan did with the end of the prisoner is he had introduced several mysteries and instead of answering them, you know, in a way that his story guy, his, his, his Mark Frost would have, would have lined him up and tried to answer them. Yeah. He pivoted away into the allegory, which was always there underpinning the show, right? It was always part of the show, but he decided he would pivot to that. And it strikes me that what Lindelof and Coos did, um, was, do what writers should do, which was throw some answers at people with the Across the Sea, Men in Black, Smoke Monster stuff, and then pivot to emotion and character. Would you mm-hmm. say that that's kind of the the pivot they did?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And And I think that you could even divide the lost fandom into two groups. And those were the people who were, or maybe three, actually. There were people who were just watching for the mystery and you know, the intellectual satisfaction of figuring out what all the answers were. There were people who were very invested in the characters and the emotion, as you just said. And then there were people like me who kind of appreciated both. But I Mm -hmm. think from a, from a finale, at least for me, I'm, I'm looking for some kind of emotional closure. I mean, certainly you want answers, um, especially after watching something for six or seven seasons, but like Mm -hmm. the emotional aspect of that was, was satisfying for me in a lot of ways. Um, but I think with the prisoner, it's just like they just just tossed away everything else and just said, we're just never going to answer these questions that we've been asking since the very beginning. And that's – at least unless they tried to answer some questions. There were so many because they had, mm-hmm. as you said, had to draw it out for so long that they couldn't answer every single one. But the basic question of like, what is the island? Why why are these people here? They did answer that. Maybe you didn't like the answers, mm-hmm. which is a separate problem. But they yeah. did give you an answer.
2: That's the – way that uh, fan culture has developed not for the better in my opinion the idea not only are you owed an answer for the time you've invested but it has to be an answer that that you like that you find satisfying and and not one that maybe will reveal itself to you over time is the way I felt about the, F- the Sopranos finale. I mean, you know, the moment after it aired, I found it just just as confounding as as uh, many people did. I thought it was a cop out. But 13 years later, 14 years later, now it seems like yeah, that was that was pretty smart. That was as as satisfying a
0: resolution of, of that story as we were likely to get. Mm-hmm. But the Sopranos um, wasn't a puzzle uh, box show, right? It the Sopranos no, was no, it that introduced a mystery at the very end that that caused everybody to spin out. But Lost, The Prisoner, and I would say Westworld to an extent. Uh, Westworld is also a puzzle box show, a show mm-hmm. that exists to be kind of unpacked. But like, you know, the other shows that I, that kept coming up when I was looking up like unsatisfying endings, Dexter, How I Met Your Mother, uh, Battlestar Galactica, Seinfeld, <laughs> Mad Men. Some people really hate it. Those aren't puzzle box shows. Those are just, you know, you, are, you, you, you want to find an ending that is satisfying. I was racking my brain to figure out a show that nailed the dismount. Now, Jen, you say Lost did.
1: Well, I, I w- None yes. no, 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 no. You're putting words okay. in my mouth. I don't think they perfectly okay. nailed it, but Boy, I, think, right? I think it is a much better finale than it has been historically given credit for, and I think a lot of it works.
0: Okay. Um, what is a show that, I mean, I couldn't think of a single one that, that when it ended, I was like, yes, ah, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe, um, maybe Breaking Bad for me, actually.
1: Um it I would say closest. the Americans off the top of my oh, head.
0: Oh sure, that's a great one.
1: That's that whole finale was just extraordinary I thought and it, it like what happened to the characters may not be what you would have wanted but it was very much in keeping with the spirit of that show. Um, and there were some moments in it that just wrecked me. And I've never been li- able to listen to With or Without You the same way ever since, which is yeah. a pretty extraordinary achievement <laughs> considering how many times I've listened to that song prior to the Americans finale. Um, uh, but boy, you're right.
2: I don't get Glenn started about you 2
0: Jen. Oh, I mean, no. Just never stop talking <laughs> why? about the... No, that's, that's just a Chris thing. Chris thing is, he's, he's all about the you 2
1: I know. We've, and that's why I like Chris. This. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons.
0: One of the reasons. Um, yeah. I, I have layer, Glenn. I have layer. Yeah, I've got there. Uh, that is a perfect answer, Jen. The Americans is just, just, again, surprising but inevitable. That's that's the thing that everybody's going for here.
2: I am as ashamed of having not seen The Americans as I am of having not finished Breaking Bad, and as I am of being unable to remember entire seasons of Mad Men, even though I watched every episode of Mad Men. Maybe it's something about crime shows because two really satisfying finales that come to mind. For me, are the Shield, uh, Sean Ryan's Dirty Cop Show, and Justified, that those both ended in a in a very
0: yeah. very satisfying yeah. way. But with a show like Lost, you know, okay, so I'm going to attempt to explain what happens at in the okay. end of Lost. All right, Maybe should...
2: Let's put a pin in that because I want to okay. I want to get through our faffing. All right. So why are we talking about the Americans? Why are we talking about Lost? Well. The reason is that in 1966, Patrick McCune starred the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious and inescapable village where each resident is referred to, well, many residents are referred to only by a number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> we welcome you all. We welcome Jen Cheney. To the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it. Like Cher Horowitz telling her teachers that her father taught her never to accept a first offer and that she considers the lowball grades in her report card merely a starting point from which to open negotiations. Listeners, as if the oral history of Clueless as told by Amy Heckling and the cast and crew by our guest Jen Cheney, is available now at all your, your finer booksellers. And news agents.
0: <laughs> Nicely done, six out of six.
2: Yeah, very nice. Thank you. Thank you. We stamp it like the 95 cent three ounce special postage rate issue honoring the brilliant novelist and essayist Ursula K. Le Guin that will be available beginning July twenty seventh.
0: I like it. Six out of six.
2: The thirty-third <laughs> stamp in the literary art series, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Can be good for for three ounces of postage, even if the rate increases in the future. It's just like a forever letter rate stamp. So so don't worry about that, Glenn shan't We file it like the affection a baby owes his daddy on account of the bones being his. Sorry that that's filial filial affection, not not. Filing. Yeah, I was gonna, gonna I was gonna point that out.
0: It's sweaty. Speak to my
2: staff about that.
0: I'm taking off a point for sweatiness, but uh, five out of six. Okay, okay.
2: We index it like an adjustment made to the cassette of a multi-speed bicycle to ensure accurate and responsive shifting. Not applicable to penny farthing bicycles, but your more practical bikes will reward this sort of attention and, and regular maintenance, Glenn.
0: Okay, this is uh, Miss of Mar territory. And as we've ma- established, complete mystification uh, rates of six. So six. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're doing very well. Okay,
2: Thank you. Thank you. I, what's What's my cumulative score? No idea. Yep. We brief it like a flight attendant complying with federal law by instructing passengers that the mask will fall from their ceiling in the unlikely event of a cabin decompression, but must be affixed over your nose and mouth, which is excessive Mm. and annoying, because obviously people understand the mask is useless if it only covers your mouth. Right? Right? I mean, that's so (laughs) self-evident, I feel dumb even saying it. Right, Glenn?
0: I like the PSA uh, uh, element to this, so I'm going to give it a 6 out of 6. Thank you. I don't think I'm ever getting on an airplane
2: ever again. We debrief it, like a gentleman opting to wear boxers because... Neither support nor flattering
0: sightlines lines are important to him, apparently. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with this, st- this sentiment, so therefore I'm going to knock it down to a 4 out of 6.
2: Really? You endorse the, the boxer, huh? Uh,
0: in theory, I don't personally wear it, mm-hmm. but I, I see nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, All right. I don't have a hot take when it comes to boxer briefs.
2: We number it like the damn fool who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, getting an anachronistic prescription for Percocet
0: or like an era-appropriate bottle of whiskey or something, I I guess. Oh, boy. I'm going to need some help with this one. I I, I followed it where we started out. Jen, did you follow this? Because I was there at the beginning, and then I... We number it. Oh. Right. Number. Number. See, Jen, that sounds like enlightenment coming from you, and I don't don't (laughs) share
1: it. No, that's just me making it sound like I know what he's talking about.
0: Okay, good, good. Oh, God. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) Number. I have to give the six out of six... Uh-huh. But just know it's, there's a big old asterisk here. Okay. All right. That's fine.
2: Watch your Disney Plus. They have Hamilton on there.
0: No, no, no. Oh. I know it's Hamilton. So. I just don't understand where number and bullet comes from. I don't, I don't follow that sequence of lines. Number. After he had the Percocet. Burr. Okay. Good oh. Lord, Wow. Now I actually well, do get okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I would say <laughs> get it is. <laughs> <in general>. <laughs> <laughs> I am subtracting. This is unprecedented. I am subtracting 36 uh-huh. points.
1: You wow!
0: <laughs> yep. This is how strong I feel. That's how that's how sweaty it was. I have a negative six. Yep. Yep. Turns out.
2: I, you are destabilizing the fabric of the universe by this. Game. Yeah,
0: well. I'm not sure. Yeah, We've got to shake it up. Seven, 17, 18, 20 episodes. We're going to. Uh-huh. Everything you thought you knew was wrong.
2: Our inquiry into this unclassifiable and unforgettable series is not of a degree elementary. No, it's not. It is not of a degree erratic. <laughs> Preposterous. It is not of a degree Quicksilver. Does uh, wouldn't be. It is not of a degree anomalous. Okay. What is it, Glenn? It's a degree absolute, Chris. Right again. Despite hitting me with an unwarranted and, and frankly reckless to the survival of the species negative score, it's appropriate. You were about, before I interrupted you, to try to explain what happened at the end of Lost, which I know I did watch the end and um, I had kind of fallen off in the latter seasons. I was one of the, I guess, fairweather viewers who got derailed by the interruptions between seasons and the writer's strike and and uh, all these things that, that Jen has written about in detail. But I do remember that there were parallel timelines. We saw some glimpses of the lives of, of these characters as they might have unfolded had they never crashed on the island. And that is what you are doing here, Glenn. You are rending the very fabric of space-time asunder by giving okay. me a negative score, so... uh Knowing that, let's just dive in. I mean, it is, after all, our destiny if it is, and there's no way we can possibly avoid it. So by all means, tell us what happened at the end of Lost.
0: Okay, well, the flash sideways that uh, that occurred in season six are, as you say, glimpses of the characters as their lives would have been theoretically if uh, the flight had never crashed. Now, um, it could be a parallel dimension. What it is is just a, an alternate reality that still has connections to this one because it is possible— for these characters to still get awakened and remember their lives on the island uh, amid all the time jumps. But what we come to learn in the final episode is that these sideways dimension, these flash sideways we've been seeing are actually a place for all these characters to gather with the people who are, quote, the most important people or the the most important time of their life, to gather together to collectively pass on into the next life, so they're coming to this place from a, where, however and what, whenever they died, to be together. To among other things, help Jack understand that he has died and it's time for him to move on. Uh, a bardo is the is the term from uh, um, Tibetan spiritualism that uh, that uh, Lindelof borrowed here, and that's you know it's like Lincoln in the bardo. It's the same thing. It's something that has come up in pop culture since then, um, and the idea that this place exists is either tied directly to the island, as the people on this island, because of all the stuff they went through, have this opportunity to create this space for themselves, or it's something that just happens to everybody and the show is not forthcoming on that particular detail, which I think is a very important detail that I would have found very enlightening. Jen, how close are we, how close should we get? Is there anything we're missing? Did we misstate anything in that? wrap up
1: no i mean and this is just my interpretation and my understanding I, I always felt like the bardo mm-hmm. was really like that everybody had died at different times but it was really uh, mm-hmm. m- more purposefully to usher jack on to the afterlife which is essentially what you said but it, but in terms of how it connects to the island i mean i think they don't they don't really explicitly explain that. I think everybody was meant to come to the island so that they would connect with each other. Um but yeah, there I think there there maybe could have been a little more like connective tissue clearly uh, outlined between between the two.
0: But it is a kind of emotional satisfaction to see these characters who have been locked in locked locked in struggle for so long together in a church pew, smiling and hugging and shaking hands, because it says implicitly that all the weight of this struggle, all the weight of this world, is less important now that you have made these connections, and it's time to move on to whatever's next. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I just I think for me, watching it, so yeah. much of the emotion of it is I mean, Michael Giacchino's score is just so extraordinary, and the way they intercut between you know what's happening on the island with Jack dying and then you know what's happening in the church as you said mm-hmm. um i feel like those things are happening in tandem like the bardo is like a maybe a split second in real time in but in jack's you know whatever you want to call it his experience from being alive to to death it's it's uh it lasts a much longer time and that was what we got to see
0: yeah yeah and i do you know i i appreciate the fact that they are trying to give the I, and i'm in the uh I belong to that subset of the population who wanted to know what the fuck's going on with this island. What do the numbers mean? What's the hatch about? Darmanition. I wanted those answers. Um and I didn't get all of them, but I got the lion's share. I got the important ones, I felt like. It's just that the execution of those, and now we're going back past before the finale. Mm-hmm. The execution of those in a in a episode like Across the Sea or whichever one it wanted us, where we learn that the island is a cork. Maybe it is the end actually. Where we learn that the island is a cork and that's one thing, right? But then to see this is about the execution of it. To see the cork in the pool being pulled out with the light coming out of it, like that's where um, I was mm. prepared to go a certain distance and not prepared to go all the way with with the show. But with the caveat that I, like Chris, dropped out of the show season four, season five. I didn't feel like I like if I if it if, if this had aired now, I would have gone and watched it. I would have felt unsatisfied, but I would have shut up about it because ultimately I wasn't there for, you know, the whole thing. It wasn't for me because I dropped out. <laughs> this was, this, this ending and maybe all endings, and I'm curious to mm-hmm. hear what you think about that, but maybe all endings are for the diehards, are for the people who stuck it out.
1: So did you, have you never watched, um, the episodes that you skipped? No. And have, what about you, Chris?
2: I I honestly can't remember. I was trying. There, there was an episode that you um, talked about, Jen, or rather, I, I think it was in your your oral history. It was either Lindelof or, or Qs talking about an episode that was about three prior to the finale, where they said mm-hmm. like they they felt like this was the ending for them, and then they were going to to do the the more public, more palatable. We will give you solutions to some of the mysteries that we've established you re- recall that right i'm not completely misremembering um, what uh
1: are you talking about across the sea
2: is that the one where i mean the, the,
1: that's the one is, where it's the one with the revelation see, like,
2: about the island is
1: yeah and you see jacob and, and the man in black and it's sort of their origin story and alice okay. and janny's in it i don't know if any of that rings a bell
2: yeah was that very shortly before the finale was that one of the four yeah. or three or four episodes mm-hmm. okay maybe it maybe that is the one that i just thought i thought i saw that somewhere where they they said like okay we understand we're going to have to, uh, as, as divisive as what they came up with ultimately was, I, I thought there was that there was some place where they, they said, like, this is how we would like to end it, but we know we can't. So they were going to do something that felt climactic and satisfying for them and make it not be the final episode, but one of the two or three prior to the end.
1: Right. I mean, purely from a this explains the island perspective, that episode kind of covers it uh, in yeah. a lot of ways. But I don't know that they necessarily wanted that to be the finale unless I'm forgetting something. I forget what, Glenn, what was your original question?
0: Are endings like this one for the diehards, for the people who right. stick it out, and shouldn't folks who who weren't in it all the way up, for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. whatever reason they dropped out, I mean, like, it, you know, this, this is such a reward to viewers who stuck with it,
1: right? Well, there were certainly diehards that stuck with it that didn't like the finale either, but sure. I, I think any show, and especially a serialized one like this one, um, you're meant to watch the whole thing, ideally, and, and right. that just increases your investment in who these characters are and how they've evolved over the several seasons that you've been watching. And that's, like you said, that's true of any show. I think what was, and as you know from reading my oral history, what was frustrating and still is more than anything to, to Damon and... To a lesser extent, Carlton, just because he doesn't get as frustrated as Damon does by things, um,
2: is, is that... <laughs> well, you know, he had, to, he had to go direct San Andreas and uh, Rampage. When uh, I went and looked, at I was like, oh, he has very esteemed credits in, in TV, and I should not think of him as the guy who made these two goofy movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that people misunderstood the ending oh, yeah. and thought that what it meant was that everybody had been dead the entire time, yeah. um, which was something that was reinforced uh, unintentionally by this coda. That they tacked onto the end of the episode that was just a shot of fuselage from the beach with some credits going over it that everybody thought meant something, and I still don't understand why they didn't think people would read into that, since they read into everything. <laughs> right, right. But, yeah. but I think I think that was that's the thing that really kind of still, if anything, bothers him about it, or both of them. It's it's just that 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 their intention, the message they were trying to convey, got a little bit diluted.
0: That is the thing, right? Like they work so hard on crafting this ending and trying to thread a, a needle that it is impossible to thread. And then at the very last minute, somebody comes up and says, "Well, can we just have a cushion into the commercial? That's all we need here, just a little cushion in the commercial. And that fundamentally changes how people see right. the entire series. That is, um, That is wild. Yeah. So
2: I can see that as being the kind of slip you would make when you're exhausted, when you're mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I know they they had negotiated shorter seasons as the show went on. They weren't doing, you know, 25 episodes every season like they did the first year. But I I can still imagine how something as head-slappingly clear as that would just seem opaque to you when you are as busy and frazzled as they must have been wrapping up this incredibly popular show.
1: Right. And and certainly as in The Weeds as they were with making mm-hmm. the episode and maybe it, it it can be very hard to like extract yourself from that and take a more subjective view um, when you're, like you said, trying to finish a, a finale and not really thinking about how it's going to land to viewers when they see this little coda thing. But the other thing about this show, and I think, Glenn, you, uh, you alluded to this earlier, is this kind of show to have been making it at least initially 22, 24 episodes is yeah. insanity, just in terms of the ambition of it, uh certainly the budget of it but just the amount of moving parts into and like you were saying before trying to come up with mysteries that would keep people engaged and keep the show going since obviously abc wanted it to be going uh this is the kind of show that now would be either a limited series or maybe like three seasons max and that would be it
2: right the, the fact that abc wanted this to run for 10 seasons (laughs) <laughs> is incredible. I mean, there are certain ways in which these two shows that are our subjects here are are very different. For example, um, I don't think The Prisoner was so much about the deep personal relationships that number six forged with the... Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, the, the, just the warm relations that developed over the, the course of his time in the village. No, the thing about McGowan supposedly told Lou Grade who paid for the series he wanted to do seven episodes and Grade said, I can't sell seven. You know, I need 26 or various numbers floated, but it was a substantial multiplier of what McGowan, the amount of story he felt like he had to tell. And I was thinking about that when I was reading in your oral history about how Lindelof said, we think three seasons is good for this. And ABC says, mm, we would really like 10. They meet in the middle at six, <laughs> but similar problems, right? You, you stretch out something that's just because it is an unlikely hit. And I also think the fact that Lost was was probably much more popular than they anticipated it being played into the confusion about how it resolved or how it should have. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, uh, you know, when Damon Lindelof and JJ Abrams created this, they fully expected it not to get picked up, certainly not to go beyond a season. If that, I mean, they, they thought they were just going to do this as a one-off and have fun and never have to answer all these questions that they were raising in the (laughs) pilot. So uh, again, if you, if you look at, if you look at all of that in context, the fact that they did what they did with that show is pretty extraordinary. And to come back to something you were talking about before um, about sticking with the show and, and uh, whether the finale rewards you, one of the things that bothers me is when people and they said this after Game of Thrones, and I wrote a whole piece about this at the time too. You know, I didn't love the finale of Game of Thrones. I felt like the last season was felt a little bit rushed, especially the the latter half. But that doesn't mean that I felt like I wasted every amount of time that I spent watching it for the prior seasons. And I right. think you heard that a lot with Lost, too, where people sure. are like, wow, I wasted my life watching that show and thinking about it. I'm like, no, you <laughs> didn't. You enjoyed it. You met some new friends. You had a good time, and you just didn't like the ending. But that doesn't negate what the show was, what, how much you enjoyed it, the impact that it had culturally. I just feel like at certain times we put way too much weight on finales as if they define the entire show, and they really shouldn't.
0: Yeah, I mean it's recency bias among other things, but like, yes, it is. It it, it it it's not. It's these are the same people saying X destroyed my childhood. Didn't do anything like that. Your childhood's still there. Or uh, the Hunchback of Notre, Notre Dame Disney film destroyed the book. The book's still there. It's like it, it's it's there is this. I mean, it's going to surprise you, Jen. There's a kind of uh, all or nothing mentality on the internet where people are just uh, they split into binaries. You're kidding. Yeah, I know, right? The it's thing hard to about. Believe. The, the, to bring this back to The Prisoner and to contrast it with Lost, I think The Prisoner was a serialized narrative in name only. Like it paid lip service to serialize and story. But the thing that Lost just kind of put both hands around is the fact that this, that, that, Narrative is a very powerful drug, and uh, you know this is why soap operas exist. They are story without resolution, and that there's something about that that is just and this endless churn is what keeps people coming back. Just tell me a story, tell me a story, and things like uh, and just right. to bring a Shahrzad. My my yeah well, yeah exactly and and superhero stories, like in comics anyway, are just endless churning adventure after adventure. They're not stories they're because stories have a beginning, middle, and end, they're just ongoing adventures, and so I think the fact that the prisoner, which really didn't have, yes, it was the same character, but he could have just been started over every morning there there was no right. real through lines connecting one one episode to the other because he was so rooted in allegory. Um, the fact that that ending had the explosive reaction it did should have should, stands as a cautionary sign, <laughs> a cautionary tale to anybody who would do anything like this, let alone tell a story with really compelling characters for six seasons. Um, do you think they saw this coming?
1: I know that they were worried about it um, yeah. because, uh, Chris, as you alluded to before, like Damon and Carlton kind of. I feel feel like they were the first showrunners who became sort of famous for being showrunners. I mean, right. certainly there were people who knew yeah. I mean, well you could say that about like David Lynch and, and Mark Frost, maybe. Um and Norman
0: or, Lear, but that's not the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well sure. But like <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't like I mean, they had a podcast that everybody was like listening to their podcast was almost as important as watching the episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and people really not only knew who they were, but but Blamed them about anything when, as you Invested, know, TV is a collaborative yeah. medium, and and not not everything is always their fault. Sometimes maybe, but not always. Um, and I think that more people are aware of who showrunners are and have been since that era, um, in part because of them. Not not solely because of them, but in part.
2: I'm I'm trying to imagine David Lynch engaging the the viewing public the way that Lindelof did you know writing blogs <laughs> doing getting on Twitter to, yeah, no. I feel like yeah Lynch would be like well um, you know I wrote this piece in my Glockenspiel that I think expresses my feelings about uh, your disappointment and I'd like to play that for you now <laughs> <laughs> but I won't be writing a guest column.
1: But what's interesting about when Lost debuted and around the time when it was was uh, greenlit is you know network executives were kind of they were not sure people would watch a show like that because it was so serialized. And I think the mindset at the time was people want to watch shows where they can pop in at any episode, understand what's happening, pop out, pop in again. They don't want to feel like they have to watch every single week. And, you know, not to use a pun, but to flash forward to where we are now, Mm -hmm. everything is serialized. Like, I can't watch a Marvel movie without having watched... All of the ones that came before and every TV show. Like, as you said, the the addictive nature of, of narrative, like that is what every single studio and streaming service and everything else is relying on, that we will be addicted yeah. to it.
2: I want to punch myself because I'm about to say content creators. But um, I mean, that, that probably <laughs> artist is not always the appropriate term. They've realized that that sense of, of ownership, that thing, the intense identification they have with it is a goldmine right? Mm -hmm. And I think that means like for every Last Jedi, which I loved, which I I loved more than I thought I could love a Star Wars movie at age 40, because it truly was bold and and challenging and and different, but uh, probably not worth the headache of of pissing off big subsection of your your audience. And quickly followed up by a much more conventional toothless and, and boring movie, but one that allows the factory to to, to keep going
1: mm-hmm. right
0: Jen do you think that Lindelof took any lessons from the ending of lost to the leftovers and then to watchmen?
1: I mean I, I think he still loves ambiguity um he always will uh and and i I personally like that too um so <clears throat> I think he still has that element in in the finales of those shows as I said before uh I'm sure. I mean, I know for a fact that just on an emotional level, the the bad reaction it really did impact him, um, and I think it made him probably doubt himself a little bit, um, which was why I was really happy when the leftovers eventually was so well received because I thought it was really well done, but I was hopeful that it like gave him his confidence back. Um, mm-hmm. So and the
2: leftovers was was that. AM that was a cable.
1: It was HBO. Chance,
2: right? yeah. that was, so a much smaller audience than, than Lost. Maybe it's a more sophisticated audience. I mean, we accept that you have much more leeway to take risks when you're dealing with cable because it's it's just a smaller audience than network by a lot, right?
1: No, that's absolutely right. I mean, there was certainly less pressure from that standpoint that not everybody in the country was watching that show all at once the way they were with Lost. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is what you were kind of thinking about, Glenn, but uh, certainly one thing he he took away is that he he kind of lowered his profile a little bit. He eventually just got off Twitter entirely. He's never yeah. come back. Um, he's still on Instagram. <laughs> but um, I think that, and and certainly he still does lots of interviews and things like that. It's not like he's hiding. But I think that he um, maybe hasn't put himself forth to the same degree that they were doing with Loss, where they were just like... More or less, just going open season. What do you got? Um, sure. I think he, I think he's maybe been a little more thoughtful about that. Um, certainly, that's something. That's healthy. I don't feel like I'm his spokesperson, so I can't say for sure. But well, yeah, I, sure. I
2: mean, I'll say like, like that. was I mean, I was aware of, of his very, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe chastened isn't the, the right word, but you know, bruised response mm-hmm. to, to the, the way he got beat up over you know by people who didn't like the way Lost ended, and that that was another reason that I was was shocked when I read that he was going to be the the keeper of. Watchmen. I mean, Watchmen is another kind similarly niche thing, right? I mean, among people who are reading comics in the 80s, it was a really big deal, but it's not, it doesn't have the kind of recognition that any of the Marvel superheroes have or, or Batman or anything like that. And I had a really. Half-formed, kind of ignorant notion of Lindelof's body of work just based on some screenplays that he wrote that I didn't love, Mm -hmm. you know, and and hadn't seen the leftovers at all. But I thought Watchmen was terrific. I was stunned, and I was so so glad to be wrong. Yeah, Um, coming on the heels of something that had been adapted into a movie that I thought was just sort of pointless. I mean, just just that's uh, a nice word for that movie. Yeah, I mean, the way Zack Snyder, the the way that you can do, you know, almost a literal shot for shot, line for line adaptation of something and still completely miss the point. I don't know how he does that, but but, uh, he (laughs) he makes it happen. But I thought, you know, Watchmen set 30 years after the events of the comic series. I was just so, so happily surprised by how great it was. And I was completely satisfied by its Mm -hmm. somewhat but not entirely ambiguous conclusion. You know, I thought it was poetic. I thought it was hopeful. I, I just... I loved it. I was just surprised that after having an experience like that, that Lindelof would be willing to to just touch something like that, especially since he had just come off of the leftovers, where he had created something. That or wait, was the leftovers an adaptation? I mean, it was. Yes, was it's an ad- adaptation it of a novel.
1: Yeah. Okay,
2: there goes my whole theory. <laughs> entirely, <laughs> well, entirely wrong. Entirely wrong.
1: A, a couple things about that. Um, one is that I I knew how much Watchmen meant to him. Um, and he had said no to it a few times. Like, th- he had to really kind of work up the the courage, I guess, to really, like, try to take it on. Because he, I think he probably had the same doubts that you would and anticipated people would have the kind of reaction that you initially had. Um, but Watchmen was really, um, I, I hadn't actually read it until Lost. And when I understood that there were certain elements of Lost that were being taken or inspired by Watchmen, that was when I really read that and, and kind of devoured it much more closely and and then saw the movie and was like, what in the hell is this? Um, <laughs> so when they announced the series and that he was doing it, it made it made complete sense to me. And I mean, not that people's responsibility is to think about how creators of series feel, but anybody who creates something, like they're a human being that is, is going to be nervous when they have to present it to people, especially if they've had backlash against their work in the past. And I I was moderating the um, the Watchmen panel at New York Comic Con, um, which was the first time that anybody outside of critics was seeing footage of this. And wow. I remember being backstage with Damon; and he was very very nervous. Like all these comic book people are going to be watching this in real time. How is it going to go? And of course, they loved it. It went great. Um, but you know, I, I think it I think it's hard for anybody who has been who creates things and kind of puts their heart into it. Uh, and it's something that critics can easily forget, myself included, mm-hmm. that they do take it very personally when people really don't like it. Um, that doesn't mean we can't not like it, but when people get vicious about it, it's uh, it can really it can affect your ability to kind of continue being inspired and yeah. in doing your work.
0: Yeah, one of the more hopeful things uh, in recent pop culture history is Watchmen, uh, Lindelof's Watchmen, because this is an example of a creator looking around, not only learning lessons from you know his own work, but Learning the most important lesson you can pick up from the Zack Snyder Watchmen, which is not this. <laughs> Don't do this. This is exactly, it's exactly what Chris said. Make it a shot for shot remake and then miss the point and turn these broken characters into heroes. No. What you do instead is you take a huge swing, which you, you take this document, which is about uh, the sociopathy of heroes quote unquote, costume heroes and make it about race in America, you know, turn it on its head by making it about a different kind of sociopathy, a different kind of negating the, the, the essential self of others, like, just, and make it about the systems that um, superheroes tell themselves they're, you know, they're fighting against. It's just, it was so smart and so canny and such a big swing. And as Chris said, it's got a perfect ending. Perfect ending. And yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, just just to to have the the foresight, the vision to realize that, like, if if we place the central focus on race, and that will that will be more urgent than the prospect of nuclear Armageddon. Yep. You know and and to actually be right about that,
0: mm-hmm. I,
2: that is that is Hall of Fame the Galaxy Brain uh, thinking. That I, I guess is largely down to, to Lindelof. I mean, I know I know he he staffed his his writer's room on that show with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Really, really brilliant people. Um, I think, wasn't Coulson Whitehead involved and Brandon Jacob Jenkins and you know some people who had not worked in, in television before? Um, but uh, yeah, he certainly chose the right collaborators and, and had all the right
1: impulses. And I would say that what he did with Watchmen actually kind of springboarded, in my mind, from Leftovers in the sense that the mm-hmm. first season of Leftovers hewed much more closely to the novel. Um, not entirely, but very closely. Mm-hmm. And then seasons two and three, which are the masterpieces of it, um, mm-hmm. are, totally, are totally telling a different story that's springboarding from what was in the book. And that's what Watchmen does. It, it uses that original narrative as a foundation, and then it tells an entirely different story on top of it. Um, yeah. and, and I feel like, I don't know, it's hard for me to say because I've read Watchmen more than once, but and, I, and I've talked to people who were kind of confused if they hadn't read it, but I felt like you could come into it either way, either having all that back knowledge or not, and still get something out of it.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think, I think it's a stand, it stands alone... Because he knows what is essential and what is not, and he communicates that to the audience right away, um, and leaves those of us who know the book very well confused in the beginning, and then ultimately kind of just uh, lets it lets it all unfold in a way that that leads you to a place that is, uh, you know, sing along with me, uh, surprising but inevitable. <laughs>
2: I wonder how much of this is uh, just the fact that Damon Lindelof, as, as uncommonly visible and high profile as he was for a, a showrunner, as you said, Jen, you know, still not an actor. I mean, he's not someone whose face is in, you know, frame uh, every every week. Whereas McGowan, who was the creative force behind The Prisoner, but also the the star of the show, felt compelled to just leave the country after it aired and, and um, became kind of a recluse afterwards and certainly never attempted anything of like ambition. He would take on acting jobs and he directed episodes of Columbo here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, He directed some weird adaptation of Othello, uh, (laughs) but did not appear in it. But yeah, it it seemed like for whatever reason, whether he was just creatively exhausted or whether he thought this isn't worth the trouble, or like I don't think it was like an Orson Welles situation where he had all these projects and just could never get the money, or it, it seemed like he just did not have the will. So I'm I'm glad that Lindelof processed his trauma by going back and working again pretty soon. The interval between the end of Lost and the beginning of Leftovers was. What, like five years maybe? Or so? It wasn't, was it even? It was a long? little while, but no. as
1: you said, he was working yeah. on other things in the, in the meantime, yeah. movies that apparently you hated. But, uh. <laughs>
2: but. I, you know, you can read the original screenplay for Prometheus online, and I, I thought the original screenplay was better. And I know that the Lindelof rewrite was all done with the sanction and participation of Ridley Scott, so uh, I should just take up my gripes with, with Ridley Scott. And I'm going to right now. Excuse me, Jenna. Oh, I'm, okay. Great. Uh, you know. No, I, I certainly place too much emphasis on his uh, rewriter for hire work and that little gap between uh, his his TV opuses.
1: Well, and then there was that other movie. Um, was it Tomorrowland? The one that?
0: Oh yeah, was, yeah. Which I
1: didn't love. Like yeah. I, I could just feel the studio interference on that one. To me,
0: yeah, absolutely. You could feel yeah. it. It, was, it felt made by committee. Um, yeah, felt a spark of an idea that was just right. Um, and I and I wanted to down. love that one so so much.
1: Yeah, same. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you kind of walking us through um, what has eerie parallels. And maybe the parallels are not surprising because uh, Lost owes a lot to the prisoner. And I think Love has mm-hmm. even mentioned that many times.
1: For sure. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me, guys.
0: Alice
2: oh, was great. Please come back. We're, we are trying to uh, find some, some more connective tissue to current TV.
1: You can do a whole episode on The Good Place.
2: <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought of the good place as an analogue for this. Yeah, that, I mean that when that he when he first shows
1: up in the village, I hard. was expecting him to go into a froyo shop, honestly.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> right. There is a certain resemblance there to it. Except it's like so the prisoner is Victorian Seaside Resort, and the good place is just L, like Southern California. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the Grove.
0: It's the Grove, two, it's exactly two the
2: hours Grove. from the beach. Yep. <laughs> Foreign traffic. How many units does it take to get a get a froyo? Oh, wow! Well, mm. How many work I mean, work units, credit units? Yeah, I never know. I don't know. Even like... their currency differs slightly from episode to episode. They yep. they really <laughs> this really it really was a a primitive effort, and even compared to contemporaneous things like Star Trek, where they at least had broad agreement in the writers' room of like, okay, here's what the transporter is, here's what warp drive is. Mm-hmm. These things will be the same from from episode to episode.
0: Yep. Oh, my God. The story Bible for Lost must have just kept growing and growing and
2: growing. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, what, what would you like to plug? You know, you're, you're writing on television uh, all the time at Vulture. Uh, what else you got? What's coming up? Tell us where to find you, where to read you.
1: Uh, the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter, and you can follow me there at Chaney J. Well,
2: it's been a, a delight to have you. Thank you again. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Thank you right, so much, guys. Jen.
1: Have a good Jen. one. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Yes, good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like to insert a, a,
2: a private advert in the personal column of the next issue, please. Certainly,
1: sir. What
2: is it? I have it written down. Sort of personal joke between myself and uh, a certain friend. Think... All right, Glenn, we, we've had some mail come in. It's been a few weeks since we, we opened up the mailbag, yep. so we need to uh, catch up on that. You got your letter opener handy?
0: I do. It is... a. Uh, Got a little hawk on the end of it, uh, a little hawk head with uh, diamond eyes, solid gilt, not silver. Um,
2: good, good, uh, good. One out of six. What's its uh, potential
0: use as a weapon, would
2: you say, in a pinch?
0: Um, I, I think, you know, if uh, you, you couldn't, you, it would be very effective a, against Green Lanterns because it is kind of yellowish. So I uh. Uh, suppose no, nobody else, I really think.
2: Yeah, it's not going to get through Batman's Kevlar suit or anything. Well, if it'll get through an
0: envelope, tell us what you got. Okay. Hi, guys. Uh, sentiment about the podcast. I have a suggestion for a post-Prisoner pod ep, the Columbo episodes that McGowan guest starred on and directed. Oh,
2: the, the triple P, a post-Prisoner pod.
0: Post-Prisoner pod. Over the last few months, I've been watching The Prisoner on Canopy for free and Columbo and Peacock also free. The timing was perfect for your podcast. The Aunt Mick G eps are basically like mini movies. I've seen three and they're great. He is a quintessential... Columbo, Murderer, Cold, Calculating, Impatient, Arrogant, etc. First, he won an Emmy for uh, Season 4, Episode 3 by Dawn's Early Light. That one I've seen, 1974. Next, he was in and directed uh, Season 5, Episode 3, Identity Crisis. This is very helpful. Thank you for uh, directing us to which episodes we should do. Which has obvious prisoner references in it and co-stars Leslie Nielsen. Surely... Can't wow! Serious. Then there's a big gap until Columbo was revived. I forgot about that. When in 1990, he was in and directed season nine, good Lord, episode three, Agenda for Murder, and won another Emmy. Oh, I would have loved to, I want to see him accept an Emmy, although it was probably for <laughs> a guest starring on a series. So it was probably <laughs> in the Schmemmies and the technical Emmy, so he probably didn't accept it. There's How one would he would have sent s- on
2: his behalf. Do you think he would have sent an emissary to collect his <laughs> Emmy? If- <laughs>
0: <laughs> he would have said number 48. <laughs> <Totally laughs> he would
2: have said Angelo
0: Muscat. He would have said Alexis, Alexis Kanner. He would totally <laughs> have said Alexis Kanner. There's one he directed and starred in that I haven't seen called Ashes to Ashes, which co-stars his daughter and Rue McClanahan and Sally Kellerman. Holy crap. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. And is from season 12, unless when he directed stars his other daughter, Murder with Too Many Notes. Too Many Notes. But he's not in it uh-huh. himself. I read about these two on the website. Columbophile and Columbo Wiki. Anyway, I think you would like the first three at least and find plenty to talk about from them. Uh, And also he says uh, other nice things. Thank you. Uh, Carolyn. Oh, my God. Look at me. uh, Look at me being sexist and essentialist. I I assumed anybody would write into a prisoner podcast. This is um, Professor Carolyn Koka of the Department of Politics, Economics, and Law at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. Thank you so much, Carolyn. That's fantastic.
2: So that's four Columbo's over a span of twenty-four years, and they're all they're all feature-length.
0: Uh, Can yeah. I hear well, you correctly? They, they certainly were back in the seventies. About an hour and a half, maybe two hours with commercials. Uh, so that's one, two, three. I think five actually. Five actually. All he right. Either uh, appears in or directed or both.
2: I think that's a sublime suggestion. Yep. Uh, I move that we accept it. Can I get that seconded?
0: Uh, seconded. Uh, we have a quorum.
2: Oh. All right, it passes. Glenn, do you have a, a guest? idea who um could help us with some or or all colombo material
0: uh well i would like to i would like to nominate and and put it before the chair um my colleague linda holmes who has been on a bit of a colombo rewatch lately
2: i'm familiar with her work Mm -hmm. happy to accept your your nomination can we call this a guest announcement
0: um, I haven't asked her yet, but um, <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see. If you want to uh-huh. put it out there in the feed, then she kind of has to, right? Because that's no touchies, no tradebacks.
2: Well, you were supposed to ask her, but I guess if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Linda, would you please come on A Degree Absolute to talk about Patrick McGowan's various Columbo episodes with me and Glenn?
1: Why, yes, Chris. I would love to come on A Degree Absolute to talk about Patrick McGowan's Columbo episodes with you and Glenn-
2: Thank you, Linda. We will be honored to have you. How hard was that, Glenn? Come on.
0: Linda, of course, is a uh, Latter Day scholar of Colombo, and She's written about it uh, extensively, and uh, she is—you know—she's a good get. Good get. <laughs> Don't know how you got her. Don't know how you swung a Linda. Yeah. Holmes, well, but, well, you—you uh,
2: you were no we're help. You. Let me just say, you were no help. I
0: wasn't. I really wasn't. <laughs> I, I was on vacation. <laughs> but it's like a six degrees of separation thing, right?
2: Six out of six for that segue, Glenn. Well done, Weldon. Thank you again for that fine suggestion, Carolyn. This is one that comes from it's signed by by someone who has a different name than what comes up on their their email address. So I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to one name them because mm-hmm. uh, you've 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 got me into this privacy.
0: Well, I just uh, totally outed uh, uh, Professor Kappa. So you know,
2: <laughs> you did. Um, you know, why don't you just tell us when her office hours are? Yeah. That's exactly so if right. anybody wants to. Uh, <laughs> you know. All right. Subject line: Catch My Soul. Hey guys absolutely Mm, your podcast mm, job really chuffed you oh chuffed is favorable as well glenn but Uh i i'm I'm not gonna censor chuffed because that's a that's such a great adjective (laughs) Uh, really chuffed you got alex cox involved he's a hero of mine i'm a few episodes behind so forgive me if this came up on your ice station zebra episode Uh but are you considering a catch my soul episode i love mcguin's bonkers rock opera reimagining of othello and i would like to hear your take on it Keep up the mm, work. Be seeing you, Joey. Joey, we are grateful for your input. We are way ahead of you there. We, we have enlisted the aid of our friend Patrick Flynn, the creator and host of the Original Cast podcast, on which uh, Glenn and I have both appeared in the past. He will be helping us figure out what's what's going on with the Magooine-directed, not Magooan starring but Magooine-directed version of Othello in the coming weeks. We're very excited about that. Yes. Uh, Not the easiest film to find, apparently. So, yeah. so Patrick jumped through some hoops to procure a copy. So, thank you to Patrick for that.
0: That's good. That that means our audience will be, <laughs> 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 like, the six people who have ever seen it. That's awesome. That's great. This uh, is this is this is exactly how you grow a podcast, Chris. This is perfect. <laughs> yes.
2: All right. I hope you've got some sharpness left on the the blade of your gilt hawk handled letter opener
0: because I believe you have. At least one more. This is from Paul. I believe he's written to us before. Thoughts on Fallout and your episode thereof. Um, if you look at the body language of the assembly, they are clearly in an uproar during number 48's first rendition of Dry Bones. Not, But their movements are stylized and repetitive, so it does look a little like dancing. That is uh, Paul saying, I was right. Glenn was right. That's uh, could have just yes. uh...
2: yeah and I, I actually uh shortened that passage of our our fallout episode because i i was just confused when you, you were talking about how the assembly the the first time they hear dry bones the way they seem uh you said oh. under directed i was confusing that with their later later on they're dancing and clapping along in a more recognizable way and i that's what i was thinking
0: of when you were describing their initial chaotic response okay Point point second. I think the significance of number six referring to number 48 as young man. Young Young man. Young man. Is that number six is christening number 48 with a new name. From that point on, he's no longer a number. He's a person. Number 48 says, I'm born all over. Give me the rest. Young. Man. I'm born all over. Another nod it being a christening. Third nod, it's not listed here, but I'm just going to say... uh. McGowan, McGowan would love that. I think you know what I, I believe it may not be right. Doesn't doesn't matter to me. I believe it. Well, how about you? Yeah. Good. Okay.
2: Yes, the motion carries. <laughs> Again, no one wants to use names. I am not a not a number. I am a free man. Like that doesn't really follow, you know. As much as uh, I am not a number, my
0: name is Freeman. <laughs> I am Martin Freeman. <laughs>
2: and this is my identical um, twin brother, Morgan.
0: <laughs> I, I really like this because, again, what Paul is referring to here is going from being a number to a man, a number to a person. I think that's ah. really, if you're looking at this, allegorically, and, and oh, let's do. I think uh, I think that's what we got going on here. Point three, the assembly dancing and clapping along with the second edition of Dry Bones, along with the music playing loudly, reads to me like a power play designed to silence number 48. It is reminiscent of how the establishment will support the language of resistance to take away the power of language. The commercialization of protest songs comes to mind. In recent events, I'm reminded of how the term fake news flipped from being an accurate description of fabricated news stories to a term authoritarians now use in an attempt to silence their critics. I believe this, Paul, if... He didn't start lip syncing it and his lip syncing is what uh what what facilitates the the song. I think there's some I, I do believe it's not an attempt to silence him. I believe it is volitional on the part of number forty eight. That's my reading. How about you?
2: Yeah, I I I mean they're they're just joining in the song, right? They're mm-hmm. they're that's not an intellectual act. Right. I mean, we've all sung sung lyrics to songs with, without thinking about what we're saying. Right. Sure. You're, you're not digesting the words, uh, contemplating the meaning the, the way you do with speech. I mean, I, th- I think it's been demonstrated again and again that in, in song melody ranks far above language or lyrics in, in um what we're what we're responding to what affects us emotionally i don't know i think i think they're they're being swayed just as surely and and quickly and thoughtlessly as when uh, kodos and kang say abortions for some small american flags for others sure and the and the people of springfield cheer mm-hmm.
0: absolutely point the fourth i thought that maybe the regrettable bullet could be a bullet item on the assembly's agenda but that's probably a stretch <laughs> we we agree on that paul it's probably a stretch uh, Sub Bullet um, in 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. It's pronounced bullet. There is a monster called a bullet. It's basically like a giant, evil uh, armadillo. Uh, although past editions have gone with French sounding boulet. Um, and mm. uh, he apologizes for the pedantry, but he doesn't need to because we are, after all, us. Point to fifth. I do not know if Fallout is a good series ending, but it's an ending that delights me. I'm a sucker for an ending that pulls the rug out from under our expectation, especially when it reinforces the show's overall tone. I'm reminded of the ending of Twin Peaks Season 2 in the 90s and Season 3 just a few years ago. Those endings weren't satisfactory plot-wise, tell me about it, but doubled down on the tone of an ease that pervades the show. Similarly, Fallout cranks uh, cranks the surreal elements of the prisoner up to 11. Uh, completely agree on all points there uh, that is what this is accomplishing. It is not narrative ending it is um, a tonal ending
2: yeah I'm still not wild about the tommy guns yeah you no know? sure I, uh, I i mean i i like the I like the guys in scuba gear pedaling bicycles out of there sure i I like the uh helicopter fleet coming up out of the Many underground hangars that uh, we we haven't known about. I, I like all that stuff. I don't know. Just the blowing them all the way just seems as a sop to um, other more conventional things that were in the culture at the time. The finales of, of Bond movies and and so on. I actually think I I I like living in harmony's play on Western tropes more than I like just that specific thing that it has to turn into what you described aptly as a bloodless bloodbath. Yeah, I like all the rest of it.
0: Me too. That's my letter. You got another one? I do.
2: Sean writes, Hi, guys. i the show and have to thank you for getting me through the entire series for the first time. See, this is a valuable service that we perform. <laughs> We're like midwives. We we did this for, for Matt Gourley, too. Yeah, like you're doulas, a midwife. Glenn, I'm more a doula, right? but... Yeah, I practice allopathic medicine <laughs> and you, you practice homeopathic medicine, <laughs> right? Am yep. I... Okay. I'm writing to see if you have any thoughts on a connection that occurred to me here in McGowan's many pointed line readings reminded me of an episode of Frasier, the show must go on, season eight, episode 12, wherein Derek Jacoby plays a once acclaimed Shakespearean actor who is now only famous for a sci-fi TV series, Frasier and Niles convince him to try theater again, only to discover that he is in fact terrible. Specifically, his delivery of a line from Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1, "Disguise fair nature with hard, favored rage, sounds to me almost exactly like one of McGowan's more emphatic inflections. Although the character himself is not a parody of McGowan, specifically, I wonder if Jacobi's performance is drawing on one of the British acting world's most famous egos. For more in context, in the same episode, Jacobi's character's father is played by the Avengers' own Patrick McNee, who memorably says, I'm here to see cats. Mm-hmm. Be seeing you, Sean. Yeah, I've I've seen it. I've seen this Frasier. Mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, you know, my ears were not tuned to Magooan frequency. So it, it would not have occurred to me that Jacoby might be doing a Magooan.
0: I think Derek Jacoby has been around enough uh, hammy Shakespearean actors to have come up with his own take. But, you know, <laughs> I'll check it out. I'll certainly check it out, you know, because I, I, I have seen this episode. I've seen them all. I just don't remember it off the top of my head, but they're out there.
2: It was it was really nice to see Patrick McNee again. I, I remember that. Uh, what would it sound like if Patrick McGowan were saying disguise fair nature with hard favored rage, Glenn?
0: Well, there's no good consonants at the end of any of those words. So it's not going to be pure, but disguise fair nature with hard favored rage. So it's all I got all
2: i got five out of six i was i was hoping for uh a little little more on the the r there but mm-hmm. you, you can't have everything that you want mm-hmm. all right paul freeze voice work just to clarify freeze did not voice all four beatles in the cartoon series just john and george english <laughs> actor lance percival voiced paul and ringo thanks for the mm, of your podcast
0: greg there we go
2: a degree greg. absolute sure regrets then. the error. Yep. <laughs> All right. From our faithful correspondent, David Lure. Subject line. (laughs) Assembling Avengers. Oh, well, you know, I I did out his last name, but he's pretty public. Uh, Okay. David writes, The Avengers actually already were a big deal before Diana Rigg. All right, Glenn, I just want to point out that he's he's disputing you here since uh, you you made uh, a big deal about it just just moments ago when Paul wrote in to agree with you. That's why I'm pointing out that David is now challenging you again mere mere moments after after Paul moments has, uh, not
0: not weeks, no. not long, <laughs> long weeks since we've had this. Conversation. No, we
2: filmed this podcast in sequence. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. It wasn't the you're right. Meaning meaning me. I, but I write, it wasn't the Ian hendry McNee version that hit. It did well enough, but it wasn't a phenomenon or anything. It was when Hendry left and Honor Blackman joined that it took off. Honor Blackman, who of course, uh, later became Uh The show had started out very sober, very serious, deadly dull. It wasn't about secret agents at all. It was more basic crime and avenging people who'd been wrong. Shades of the Equalizer, decades later. Did you ever sure. watch the Equalizer,
0: Glenn? Uh, religiously, for some reason.
2: Really? Edward Woodward? Because you love the Stuart Copeland theme music,
0: right? I liked it. I also listened to a really good uh, audiobook he did of Ken Follett's Eye of the Needle. And, I, God, I fell in love with that man's voice. That, that Woodward uh, did. The, yeah, Woodward did. Wow. It's first sentence is, it was idyllic. And I was like, I'm in. Wow.
2: All right. It was still that with Honor Blackman, but she brought some flash and a little archness. McNeely leaned into that because his natural charm fit that much better. Her wardrobe uh, also had a huge impact. It was her kinky boots that took the UK by storm so much so that she and McNeely released a novelty single, Kinky Boots. It's a thing. David includes a link to a YouTube clip of Kinky Boots as though I don't know Kinky Boots, as though I haven't had it in my iTunes library for years. Okay. Uh, forgive me, I misspoke once again in honor of our guest Jen Cheney. I meant to say, as if, as if I don't know kinky boots.
0: All right, this counts as a tangent, but I'm um, tangent uh, tolerant, certainly... punch card
2: powered, properly punctuated.
0: Sure, sure, sure.
1: Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots,
0: kinky boots. It's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the roots.
1: Borrowed from the boots. Magazine say, wear
0: And you rush to obey like the women in the harem.
1: Full-length, half-length.
0: Fully-fashioned, half-length.
1: Brown boots, black
0: boots. Patent leather jack boots. Low boots, high boots. Lovely lanky thigh boots. We all dig those boots.
2: When she left and Diana Rigg came on, they rejiggered the series into more of a spy thing. It stayed outlandish and got even more so with Linda Thorson. That's when they added Mother as their boss. And it's funny how the arc of the Bond film, Sirius Slightly Arch, Full Camp, is right there in the arc of The Avengers with each iteration. Yes, ironic detail. Even though it didn't start as, quote, man with Lady Companion, end quote, The Avengers was basically created by Sidney Newman. No relation to uh, Lorraine, presumably.
0: Oh, that's why I, missed, you know, I couldn't I couldn't figure out why you went all pardo there, but okay.
2: Who created the template for Doctor Who. And Brian huh. Clemens, uh, this, this guy again, was a, a major, major writer uh, for most of the season of The Avengers, eventually came to America and, among other things, wrote several episodes of Remington Steel, which makes sense. Uh, I also saw Brian Clemens' name, uh, and I think it was a story credit on uh, after we, we had a recent episode that tangented all the way into Highlander 2, The Quickening. Sure. Um uh-huh. hadn't seen it, still haven't seen it, but I, th- I thought it was weird that Brian Clemens had a had a story credit on it on it somehow. He, I think, we're still talking about Clemens here. He also made a pilot in 1978 for a show that feels like an attempt at an American version of the Avengers escapade with Granville Van Dusen and Morgan okay. Fairchild. I should have sent you the link, Glenn, but, uh, yeah. I, 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 did have kinky boots. I did not have the, uh, and the full apparently unpurchased pilot of escapade that aired in May of 1978 is, is there on YouTube? I haven't watched the whole thing, but I've watched the title sequence a couple of times
0: mm-hmm. because okay. I like the well, I mean, music.
2: The- I like that. It starts with that ABC special thing. I like the, um, diamond encrusted computer in it that seems to be giving them their orders Uh, I like that there's a guy on it named Granville Van Dusen (laughs) and those words appear over his face (laughs) over his giant lapels
0: Dutch for from Dusen yes Morgan Fairchild, uh, she had a moment there in the 70s, 80s, mostly in the late 70s, 80s. Uh, she and her hair had a quite a moment. Uh, don't know where she is. Don't know what's become of her.
2: I believe she's the voice of Zatanna on the adults-only Harley Quinn cartoon. I, I can't even make these kinds of jokes anymore because there's so much product out there that uh, probably more than one actor has played Zatanna.
0: But uh, she was inescapable on your Bob Hope specials. On your pink ladies and jeffs, on a, on a bunch of variety shows. Pink, pink
2: ladies Show. and jeffs.
0: It's uh, the the listeners who know will know. Okay. And, uh, the listeners who don't shouldn't look it up. Shouldn't <laughs> bother.
2: All right. So, so you're, you're you're telling me to suppress
0: my natural
2: inclination as a producer to find out what the hell we're talking about?
0: Uh, you could throw in the uh, you can throw in the the theme music if you feel so inclined, mm. but it is diminishing returns i'm going to tell you right
2: now all right continuing about the escapade um david points out that it's a quinn martin production cracked me up mm-hmm. i yeah i i don't know who quinn martin is but um
0: i think they were just producers that always had the thing at the end dragnet might have been a quinn really? martin production believe so wow it, could, it's hard for wrong. me
2: just from watching the title sequence again albeit. As I said, several times, it's, it's hard for oh. me to imagine that this and Dragnet would be the <laughs> the product of even the same managerial mind. Never mind the same yep, creative the same, mind.
0: The same pitch meeting. Well, it's, Holy it's the cow. The same pitch meeting.
2: Uh, Brian was also distantly related to Samuel Clemens. That's nothing to do with anything, but it is kind of interesting. I, I don't know. You didn't oh. seem all that impressed that Christopher Lee and, and Ian Fleming
0: were relatives somehow. So. No, no, no. Yeah. no I wasn't. It's because the island is very small. <laughs> His tiny little island.
2: I too saw the 1998 film by myself or back onto the Avengers now in a nearly empty theater. It was not good. At least Connery was got paid and seems to have had a ball to which I would add, at least he appears in a full teddy bear costume. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it's a teddy bear talking to you in Sean Connery's voice for like several minutes of screen time. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, every film has something to recommend it, Glenn.
0: And, I remember that and some kind of giant, was it a sumo suit or a giant? clear plastic ball that they yeah the in, the it?
2: Flaming Lips uh, concert uh-huh. uh, regalia uh-huh. yeah and that, although that might be one of those scenes that's in the trailer but not in the movie okay. so Good yeah time. when you get to the point where they're apparently like cutting out even presumably expensive big special effects sequences uh-huh. that's a unpromising sign David continues, I did a deep dive into the Avengers last November for a podcast, but not for podcasting about them. We did a two part episode of the Incomparable Radio Theater. That is David's podcast, of course, or his primary podcast. That's essentially an Avengers story, but in the style of the Diana Riggs series. There is a reason Riggs run is iconic, perfect chemistry, charm, etc. One thing I noticed for all the notoriety of Emma Peel in a skin tight leather suit, she rarely wore leather. She had much more sensible One Piece suits that were easier for all the martial arts action. That was by her choice. Mm-hmm. She also designed her costume for the Hellfire Club episode. Hello again, Peter Wingard. Which, that's just a great costume is all I'll say. That, of course, I know I mentioned this before, but that was the episode that I think ABC refused to air in 1966 because uh, Mrs. Peel's bondage gear was just too, too binding. Hellfire! 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 Meets! Scorch and sin, burn and boil, seethe and scald, combust and crackle, until we are inflamed, roasted, toasted, grilled, and cauterized. Until our bones crumble into that demoniac heat, that fire, that Hades, that realm of Pluto, that unblessed limbo. That purgatory,
0: that pit, Tartarus. Gentlemen,
2: hellfire! Hellfire!
0: Too hot for TV. Probably too hot for her, right? I mean, probably was. There's probably some chafing. There's probably some sweat
2: i yeah and i i, I thought i saw some feature at saying that that these um supposed to look like leather costumes were in many cases i don't know and i guess vinyl wouldn't be any more practical but but you know something that that breathed a little more something that was a little kinder to the the actors having to do yeah, all I don't that, know, uh, i don't
0: know how much more forgiving pleather is but <laughs>
2: Did, we'll did pleather even, I don't know, is pleather like margarine? Was it was it invented by accident? I
0: couldn't tell you. Yeah,
2: instead of giving the scientists superpowers, it just, just resulted in this semi-useful. I don't know,
0: and I refuse to speculate. I'm putting
2: this out here as fact, Glenn. Um, uh-huh. All right, if you will pass me the gilt-not-silver diamond-dyed letter opener, we actually have a, a legit piece of physical snail mail to open from
0: Chuck. Oh charming. Yes. Uh
2: attention a degree absolute. I'm very, very excited. Let's see what's in here. Oh boy. Ow. Oh. He wrote a letter, Glenn. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Should have had you read David's because um I didn't realize this was going to be uh, accompanied by a, but wow, look at this. This is, this is the the script for A, B, and C. Okay. Formerly play in three acts by, uh-huh. by Anthony Skeen. Uh-huh. Uh, Everyman films, limited MGM studios, Bornham Wood. Um, I can't quite. Oh, there's a handwritten note on the front. Um, I mean, like he didn't write it, but it appears, you know, whatever source this Mm -hmm. was copied from had the, it says at least fourth after many happy returns. So that would, that would seem to be a sequence notation, Mm -hmm. right? And of course this Mm -hmm. did end up being shown third.
0: Mm -hmm. And before many happy returns, am I, am I correct in that? Substantially
2: before many happy, yeah, many happy returns was seventh Mm -hmm. and also mooted for the first series finale that turned out to be really the only season um can
0: you find the uh scene where he kisses what's her name karen lois what's her name,
2: <laughs> an, a, what b and her c? name? an
0: a b and c uh, uh, ma- madame supposed- angadi no yes uh, doesn't he kiss somebody or he's supposed to kiss somebody I, getting I think
2: and, you're uh, thinking of uh, the Chimes of Big Ben, where he has, he's, oh, yeah. where he's supposed to kiss Nadia, and he he won't. Mm-hmm. He just ends up like stroking her aquanet encrusted hair.
0: Right, but and do not forsake me, my darling. He, that's when he goes home. Yeah, Jesus.
2: well, that's when he uh, says uh, no one else could have given you that message,
0: baby. <laughs> Bada bing. Alright, so there is no refu no there's no romantic contact in the script that he refused that we might be able to see in its original form. Don't think so.
2: Don't don't think so. Um yeah, although we could we could go we could go find this for uh um Chimes of Big Ben. No, but there there is the uh the one where um the woman in uh in in B scenario B was uh
0: Oh yes! Like she,
2: she was she somehow didn't didn't know the ages of her own children or the names of her children or something that, uh, mm-hmm. right? And we wondered why that information wouldn't be in his file,
0: mm-hmm. or
2: or in her file.
0: I don't know. And that's know. the scene where they dance. Yes, that's right. Where he has a, he has a dalliance uh, with her. Okay,
2: interesting. Anyway, thank you, Chuck, for uh, sending this to us. Chuck writes, "Dear Citizens Advice Bureau, I've been enjoying—oh, sorry—podcast degree bordering bordering on the absolute for some time, and I felt it was finally necessary to express that sentiment to you personally. Oh, it's getting—it's getting very intimate in here, Glenn. That's
0: uh."
2: (laughs) I was in my early teens when I stumbled across the weird and wonderful world of The Prisoner. I must have been showing in some late night shot on the local PBS station, WNET 13, perhaps. I loved it, even though all the allegory and symbolism went completely over my head at the time. I've always had a soft spot for the shows of the 60s and 70s, Mission Impossible, The Avengers, The Persuaders, The Saint. I mean, I was born considerably afterwards, and I love all this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. The Prisoner was such an insane twist on in the genre that I was hooked immediately in my 20s. I even went so far as to order all the episodes on VHS. Well, that is extreme. No, I've, I've bought them on DVD and on and on Blu-ray, so uh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm right with you. Uh, probably rented at least some of them on VHS from Blockbuster at some point as well. My theory of the village that's being run by the good guys. I get why people enjoy the both sides working together or the New World Order angles, but I think it's more realistic, a dirty word in relation to the series I know, view of how the world works and probably always has. I've long wondered how governments allow people chock full of sensitive information to be trusted to just retire. As Benjamin Franklin said, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Now to the business at hand. I've enclosed a script of an early episode. I put in that word. I've enclosed a script of an episode of The Prisoner along with this letter in the early days of comic conventions here in NYC in the late 80s. There was one vendor I would always seek out. The booth that sold movie and TV stills and scripts was fascinating to me. At the time, the Internet was something whispered about in libraries and computer science departments. So this was the only way to peek behind the curtain. Over the years, I purchased scripts like A, B, and C, as well as Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Uh-huh. I'm familiar. A Boy and His Dog, uh, which I've sure. never seen, in Outland, which I know. I know that's basically that's Peter Hyams doing uh, High Noon uh, on some colony of Venus, or yeah, you know, with uh, Connery as the marshal.
0: It seems, Chris, entirely your shit,
2: and somehow I've never seen it. I know, yeah. I know. Uh, I, Peter Boyle's in it, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, although I never wrote a screenplay, these scripts helped me learn the format and language I used in several comic book scripts. Even though those scripts had been prized possessions, they sat forgotten in a box in my basement for years. Then while cleaning out my basement, I came across some of them. I saw this one in particular, and I knew what I had to do. I hope you enjoy the script. I hope it gives you even a moment of the enjoyment that listening to your... Okay be seeing you chuck as chuck this is incredibly kind
0: that is very kind and can i just say for a moment here yeah. can i clarify something okay my thing is when people read their good reviews their good itunes reviews uh five stars <laughs> that is the thing yes. that i detest that is and make it a segment they, these monsters turn it into an entire segment that's what i object yeah. to. the occasional nice thing i'm not a no monster. and i mean sociopath d- d- d-
2: and sending this—Glenn, this, uh, this has—do you remember what these are called? I think these are called brads, these binding devices, these brass yep, yep, things with yep, bendable yep, yep. tabs that, that go through these things. That, that At some point, these pages were touched by a three-hole punch, Glenn. A three-hole punch!
0: <laughs> this is
2: tactile. This
0: is real. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm focused on that. I'm more focused on the fact that there are stamps on that envelope. Stamps. Not—not— not, at Home Stamps, not Stamps.com, no, but actual No, no, although stamp. if they
2: want to sponsor us, we will <laughs> yeah, eagerly right. pretend that they're just as interesting as real Stamps, although they're not. They're yeah, yeah. Ah, thank you, Chuck. Maybe we'll build some future episodes around the things that we discover in the stage directions, in the parts of these these teleplays that Magoon or other people, but probably Magoon, just rejected.
0: Angry scribbles, like, you know, insulting Ch- Charles Bukowski for some reason. Yes. That's, that's what I'd like to see in there.
2: OK, so it looks like since we do need to give anyone who is interested in obtaining a copy of the 1971 version of Mary, Queen of Scots and this thing, once again, stacked, stacked Vanessa Redgrave, Glenda Jackson, Patty McGee, Timothy Dalton, Nigel Davenport, Trevor Howard,
0: Guilty, mm-hmm. Ian Holm. Mm-hmm. So far, uh, one, one of these things is not like the other. And that would be Nigel Davenport.
2: I I don't actually know offhand who Nigel Davenport is.
0: There is that, yes. That's what I'm saying. Okay.
2: Uh, How about Daniel Massey? Does that name mean anything to you?
0: Not particularly.
2: Music composed and conducted by John Barry. Means something to me, Glenn. Love him. Love him. Okay. I am all in on this. The Blu-ray that I'm looking at indicates that this film was rated PG-13, even though the PG-13 rating would not come into being until 13 years after this this film was released so clearly. Uh-huh. There has been some kind of revisionist uh-huh. folder all taking place. Anyway, so you, you all, you got some time if you want to hunt down a copy of Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, not that terribly obscure. I mean, it has been released on Blu-ray and remains in print, but... Uh, In the more near term, we are going to be getting into Paddy McGee's Columbo episodes. We're going to start with By the Dawn's Early Light, Paddy McGee's Emmy-winning villain performance that Carolyn wrote to us about. That'll be coming up next. Also, before summer's end, we will get to scanners. We're going to violate the chronology a little bit and kind of go based on ease of availability. So uh, those Columbo episodes are streaming on Peacock, which is free. So those are easy to get scanners is on the criterion channel. If you subscribe to that, it's in print. There's been a criterion release there. There have been multiple home video releases of it. So that, that one's pretty easy to get your hands on and catch my soul. You guys are kind of on your own with that one. I don't know. Check your library, Patrick. Got a copy, and I don't know who he had to kill to to get it. Right. But.
0: Well, let's let's throw this out there. Here's our thinking right now. Instead of wasting y'all's time talking about a thing that nobody can get or is hard to get on the main feed, we are considering uh, taking those uh, Catch My Soul and even maybe Mary Queens of Scots into kind of bonus content area, where it wouldn't be. It wouldn't pollute your main feed, but it'd be off somewhere. Maybe it would be available, you know, at some wacky time of the time of the week, like a Saturday or something. Mm. Who knows? Uh, anything can happen in the wild, wacky world of podcasting. Yeah.
2: I don't know how Patreon works yet. I, I want you to, to start to envision Oliver with his little bowl asking for more. Yeah. More. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like we've been giving you good
0: value for what
2: this uh, show has cost you up to this point. <laughs>
0: well, I, you know, time. Cost him lots of time. <laughs> Lots and lots of precious time.
2: Uh Is Peter Falk in, is he in Wings of Desire or is he only in the sequel Far Away So Close?
0: He is in both. Uh, He is so good in Wings of Desire. Uh, He is so, so good. He is best, (sighs) uh, his precise role in that film is perhaps best determined, best uh, arrived at uh, cold. But man, when he shows up, you just smile because he's 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 bringing the fuck
2: you don't know what the fuck you're talking about glenn i i, mm-hmm. I would like to put it before the committee that i, I mean maybe we can wave in wings of desire you can get to patty mcgee in just one step and that connects you to you could
0: get to a lot of bruno people. Gans, gans and could lead us-
2: solvig yeah. damatin
0: yeah, but then if you if that's Nick our Cave. criteria, then every then every Clint Eastwood film is fair game. Oh, yeah, every Gibson films fair yeah. game. That's that's not that's not how we're that's not how we Glenn. Work
2: here. All we have to do to be able to talk about Donner Superman, to be able to do the '80s Raiders movies, is if we just do a sub series called Roland and Tomlin. We can do all the films that David Tomlin worked on as a legendary first AD. I think it's a great
0: idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is an idea that requires uh, that we should put a pin in, preferably through its heart, yeah. so that we can kill it dead.
2: Okay, so you don't want to do an episode about Gandhi?
0: I, oof, boy, there's, we have a plan, Chris, let's stick you to You don't want plan.
2: to do an episode about Chariots of Fire?
0: We we have <laughs> agreed upon plan for going forward. And all this waffling around is, uh, is is not sticking to the plan.
2: You know what they say: a plan is what happens when you're making other plans while God is
0: laughing at you. Mm-hmm.
2: Garda said that. The,
0: I would prefer to do a show about the SCTV sketch "Chariots of Eggs" <laughs> than I would "Chariots <laughs> of Fire." Thank you very much.
2: This was long before I was into uh, critiquing the running of actors in movies. But, um, yeah, I, I had some mass comm class in college where, uh, Chuck Turner, one of, one of my more beloved professors, we, we watched the, the slow motion title sequence of chariots of fire. I've never seen the film in its entirety, but, uh, I, I mean, I remember that main title theme being on
0: the radio in the oh, 80s. Yes, many, 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 many times.
2: And my professor, who I, I don't recall being a particularly jockish type, but I remember him kind of chuckling as we're watching the sequence in class and, and being like, these guys can't run. None of them can run. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he may have been a greater influence on me than I ever suspected.
0: Yeah, they they're also wore really tight white T-shirts and really baggy shorts um, that did not seem conducive to no. long distance running. No. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's What's next?
2: Ah, uh, chronologically, what would be next would be Mary Queen of Scots.
0: Okay. How do we, how do we get that? Where is that? It
2: doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. I bought a Blu-ray Okay, <laughs> that I could bring over, I guess, okay. but that doesn't help our guest problem.
0: Yeah. These ones that no one can actually watch.
2: Um, uh, well, it's only the Feng Shui Philistines who have given up all their physical media and all their means of playing physical media who can't watch them, Glenn. But, okay. I guess I will give in and agree to do Braveheart then, Glenn, if you're saying that availability is a, is a key I
0: thought I, we, I, I had already or, faded my subject. I had already said <laughs> it. So, after Mary, Queen of Scots.
2: Well, if we do this chronologically, and depending on whether or not we want to do things like the Moonshine War. Well. Mm. Or Baby Secret of the Lost Legend.
0: Oh, is he's in that? Apparently. Wow. But that can't be before Columbo. I believe it is between
2: two eras of
0: Columbo. Yeah, I think we should do Columbo's writ large, don't you? Yeah. Maybe the first three, especially the 70s ones, and then we'll see about the other ones. A Columbo
2: miniseries. Yep. A Columbo quartet. Mm Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Then we would go to... uh, Escape from Alcatraz is 79, Scanners is, I want to say, 81, Braveheart is 95, and I wasn't really thinking about this one, but he's in the trailer of A Time to Kill from 96, a, a whole lot, Glenn, and he is really? doing a thick, thick Southern American accent, so... Yeah, you
0: sure you want to be known as the man that defended that murderer? Why toss away a promising career? I guess we gotta... I guess we gotta... <laughs> <laughs> yeah... I mean, it's, it would and be one movie, thing it was, if it was obscure, but it's not really obscure. It's a well-known film.
2: Well, we're certainly not going to waste our time by devoting an episode, uh, never mind an entire podcast, to <laughs> something <laughs> obscure, Glenn, <laughs> heaven <laughs> for It has a reputation for being one of the better Grisham adaptations that mm-hmm. were ubiquitous in the you know, middle, latter part of the, the
0: 90s. And is that Cruz? Cruise?
2: No, that was the film where Matthew McConaughey was sort of promoted as though he were an established movie star before he, you know, I mean, he had had a memorable supporting part in Dazed and Confused, which was not a blockbuster, you know, a well-received, well-reviewed indie film that a lot of people liked. But yeah, suddenly uh, his face is all over the poster, his name's above the title. This movie is a couple years after both Speed and Pulp Fiction, so Sandra Bullock and Sam Jackson are billed above him correctly as I recall but still I remember being just sort of puzzled by that at the time Hollywood acting like oh this guy you already know and love and Mm -hmm. I was like who
0: well this is before he became the Lincoln lawyer he was the Lincoln (laughs) clerk indeed alright
2: so we're going to have to do that we know plenty of people with legal training who could help us out with uh, kill Uh people who can handle the truth Glenn (laughs) yep well get your trench coat on get your uh, cigar uh-huh. ready yourself to make frequent references to your oft-mentioned but never-named and never-seen wife. Uh-huh. 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 And we will join you again by dawn's early light.
0: Yes, just one more thing. Ha! There isn't one more thing, but that's a thing See, that even, I, I
2: mean, such is the degree that, that Columbo has permeated the culture, that I, I get that having seen at this moment exactly one Columbo.
0: Uh-huh. Well, that's the thing, as we will discuss, performance and formula are what drives that show. That is the appeal, the enduring appeal of Columbo. Yes,
2: I will wait until the episode to actually look up how old Peter Falk was in 1974 when By Dawn's Early Light was shot, so I don't have to reckon with the discovery that he was probably like 40.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but suffice to say, it was an era of television where middle-aged people were (laughs) were the stars of television shows. In ways they no longer can be. Quite.
2: Well, lots to lots to chew on, lots to ponder. Till then, Glenn. Be seeing you.
0: Be seeing you see the stones in your
2: eyes. See the foam twist in your side I'll wait. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemmick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Learn more about Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan Clark's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp, you can find them there. Our thanks again to our guest, Vultures, Jen Chaney. We do recommend her book, As If, The Oral History of Clueless. And I'd personally like to thank Jen for giving me an excuse to play this song. Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. Leave us a five-star review on Apple or Stitcher, whatever platform you use to hear our show, along with your Wildest Prisoner take, and we will read that take on a future episode. Please do tell a friend if you like our show. Follow us on Twitter at NotAnumberPod. A A Degree Absolute is our Instagram handle, write the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at Gmail. Finally, if you're thinking of getting into the lucrative and exciting world of podcasting yourself... NPR's podcast startup guide, create, launch, and grow a podcast on any budget by one. Glenn Weldon is now available because maybe you'll, you know, have different questions about podcasting than any of the ones that I've asked Glenn over the last six months.
0: Whoever you are, whatever you love, there's a podcast for you. Oh my God. More uh, every day. Not Sports not fan, knitting ask. obsessive, culture vulture, armchair psychologist, political junkie, science nerd, sake. foodie, left-handed Bolivian dental hygienist. Give it time. You name it, there's a podcast about it. Podcasting's growth has been nuts, and it's continuing.
2: In Uh, 2019,
0: the New York Times counted more than 700,000 podcasts in existence, uh, with 23,000 new shows appearing every day, month. Now that's according to podcast hosting service. Read the book. I I read
2: the book, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you. Good enough. Not even close. All gonna produce a nice visible line that I can use to just manipulate our conversation in, in all kinds of diabolical ways. Wonderful. Yes, that that thing about the Anthony Bourdain documentary, nothing. Nothing. That's that's child's play. No, that's
0: <laughs>
2: and, uh, and, and wrong. Okay, are you restarting your, your um, rig?
0: Well soon if I need to. And I do need to.
1: Hi, folks, I'm Jeff Altman of Pink Lady and Jeff
2: Altman. And I'm here today to have you guys venture back into time, back into the disco era. The year was 1980, things were going on,
1: Richard Nixon was out of office and our first show, Pink Lady and Jeff, which aired, I think, in 1980. And here's the first episode. It's got Sherman Helmsley in it, Burt Parks, and mm, Blondie. And
2: Blondie came to us uh, by way of videotape, so uh, put your finger down your throats when you see this one. Uh, It was as odd for me to be doing this show as, as if somebody had come down from the planet Zodar.